Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. The voters have spoken. Brandon Johnson is the new mayor of Chicago. I'm Natalie Moore, in for Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Today, we celebrate the revival and the resurrection of the city of Chicago. It is time for Chicago to come alive. Come alive, Chicago. My name is Brandon Johnson, and I can't wait to be sworn in as the next mayor of the greatest city in the world. In a nail-biter of a race, Brandon Johnson, a first-term Cook County Board Commissioner and former teacher, edged out former Chicago Public Schools CEO Paul Ballas. We'll be breaking down Johnson's win and what lies ahead for the mayor-elect. To help us drill down into the runoff election, we're speaking to Jaime Dominguez, professor at Northwestern University, Connie Mixon, professor at Elmhurst University, as well as political strategist Del Marie Cobb. Great to have you all. Well, we have a new mayor. What was your first reaction when you heard the news? Jaime, I'll start with you. Uh, I wasn't surprised, uh, given just where uh, the candidates were in terms of the, of the polls. Uh, the polls that the poll that we did at Northwestern with the Center for the Study of Diversity and Democracy I think was spot on in terms of it, it was a dead heat, and it basically came down to uh, you know on the ground operation the day of election day, and I think that's basically what we saw. Connie, it was close, very close, and I think that's reflective of how divided our city is, um, and. Interestingly, in 2019, Chicago voters chose a change candidate. And in this election, they did the same thing with Brandon Johnson. And so I think the question is, will Brandon Johnson have more success than maybe Lori Lightfoot did in her four years? And Delmarie, what was your reaction? So I was actually on a newscast uh, panel, and I'm watching the returns come in. And of course, Vallis started out ahead and I was sitting on the panel with a couple of Vallis supporters who were gloating. uh, Oh, I saw you on TV last (laughs) night. (laughs) And jumping on me uh, because they thought, oh, we're we're doing this. And uh, slowly uh, things changed in uh, Brandon Johnson's favor. And so uh, what I said and what I believe is that I agree with Connie. This is about change. We may not know what change looks like, but we do know what we don't want. And we have 35 years of evidence that what the status quo has done was not working. And Vallis represented the status quo. Did any of you predict in your head or with your family that Brandon Johnson would win? Or were you like, eh, I'm going to stay away from that too close to call? I actually thought it might. we might not know until like today once the mail-in ballots came because it was that that tight. So um, 
I was a little surprised that it was it was called last night. Um, but again, uh, the fact that he came out on top did not surprise me. Yeah, I think I, think I was a little surprised. Um, but I think that's also reflective of the bubbles that we all live in. Um, I live in the 19th Ward. All I'm seeing are valis signs, valis signs, valis signs all over. I figured it would be close, but I might have given a slight edge to valis. Um, and I was certainly wrong in that sort of back of my head guessing. <laughs> well, the 19th Ward had 60 percent voter turnout. Yeah. And Vallis was all over there. Uh Uh, My parents live in the 19th Ward, and I did see some Johnson signs in the Morgan Park area. And East Beverly on the Washington Heights border, uh, those precincts went for for Johnson. Right, right. If you went east into parts of Beverly, you did. But if you were west of Western. If you were in Mount Greenwood, (laughs) that map looks different. Yep, yep. (laughs) In fact, when I went to go vote at the Mount Greenwood Park um, early on Monday, there were nothing but ballast signs out of, outside of the polling place. I specifically looked. I didn't see a Johnson sign at any of the at the early voting site. It was very interesting. Well, I kept telling everyone to look out for Brandon, and even during the primary, I uh, suggested to people not to waste their vote um, by voting for a whole lot of other people just because you know them. Um, there's only going to be one person that we can probably get behind, uh, whoever the other person is. I said, because, you know, we knew it was going to be a runoff. So you've got to decide what other other person you want to be in that runoff. So, Connie, Vallis was ahead. The numbers started to change. It was a close race. But AP, call, Associated Press, mm-hmm. called the race but we still know there are a lot of mail-in ballots and ballots conceded. What, what is the status of mail-in ballots? There's tens of thousands out there. Right. There were something like still 90,000 mail-in ballots that were still out. My guess is Vallis's team and Johnson teams, they had the numbers. They knew where their votes were and where they weren't. Like, you know, the 19th Ward's 100 percent counted. Um, Johnson's not getting more from there. You can go to other wards and look where Johnson's strong and figure it out. So I feel like Vallis knew when he conceded that he had reached a ceiling, right, that he had capped out, that he wasn't going to find what was still outstanding were not areas that would be strong for him. Does the election board know where those mail-in votes come from? Is there any sense of ward or precinct? You don't know where the returns are, what's outstanding. Uh, where they're coming from. You know where you sent them, but you don't know where they're coming from. Right. But you can go by the fact that uh, progressives and and Democrats, uh, I mean, those people who are solidly Democrat and who are not wishy-washy, are more prone to support mail-in ballots. I mean, you know, you go by the national campaign right. uh, as an example. So uh, I think that um, they knew, and I was on the panel with uh, Vallis's election lawyer, Bert Odelson, and uh, he got worried uh, and hurried up out of the studio. So he was counting the numbers at that point. Well, we have some of Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson's victory speech, and he started out by talking to those who did not vote for him. Let's take a listen. The first thing that I want to say is to the Chicagoans who did not vote for me, Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want you to know. That I care about you. I value you. And I want to hear from you. 
I want to work with you. And I'll be the mayor for you too. I value you. I hear you. Delmarie, what did you think of that? No, that's exactly what he had to do is to let everybody know that uh, he's going to be the mayor for all of Chicago, not just for one part of Chicago. And his votes are reflective of that. I mean, you know, he when you look at his base, his base was the north side. Neither Vallis nor Brandon in the first run won a black ward. So his base was the north side. He kept them and then he built on it. Yeah so, yeah, so I just want to just say the following. I think for me, the biggest takeaway from this whole election in response to what uh, Brandon, uh, now incoming mayor Brandon Johnson said, is that he, to Delmarie's comment, that he wants to make sure that this, uh, this post-election doesn't become an us versus them, because I think that there was people trying to pit it that way, particularly around the issue of law enforcement. But more importantly, I think, I think that this is a great opportunity for the Democratic Party to redefine itself, to reconfigure itself, and a lot of that has to do with the demographic change that we've been seeing in the city of Chicago and connected to that is the um, preferences of voters. So, for example, you know, uh, if you just look at the three groups uh, in Chicago, for example, you saw how— And you mean black, black Latino, Latinos, and, and white. white. So on, on the one hand, you saw uh, uh, Latinos, for example. You saw the, the maturation and, and, and the, the, the um, evolving nature of an of electorate that's— it, it showed that it is not a monolith. In fact, that it has a myriad of, of interests, and they sit on all spectrums of, of, of politics. And I think that for them, what you basically saw is a third of the of Latinos who have been connected to the uh, party establishment, particularly the Democratic machine, those that were knee-deep in working with previous administrations like the Rahm Emanuel administration, Richard M. Daley administration, and then countering that, eventually we saw uh, Trey Garcia and the old school progressives who were a big part of Harold Washington's multiracial rainbow coalition in the 80s. And then what you see now is also just this emergence of this um, cadre of young ultra progressives. And so I, th- I but I think that could be good. This speaks to how going forward, Latinos, uh, it, it's a vote that can be uh, uh, it's going to be it's a competitive vote and it's there for the taking. With respect to African-Americans, I think that, uh, or blacks, what we saw also is, I think, um, you know, we saw the old black political guard line up behind Vallis, whether it was Jesse, uh, I'm sorry, um, Jesse White, or whether former state senator Emil Jones. And on the automatic side, you saw folks like uh, Emma Mitz and uh, Walter Burnett Jr., uh, Roderick Sawyer, et cetera. There, I think it's a question of, right, the the old guard versus uh, this new guard. And then also uh, uh, with whites, I think we saw, in fact, that, um, you know, they, they uh, while they favored Vallis slightly, I think it was a little over 51 percent, according to our poll. The fact that there was still a sizable chunk of white voters who supported Brandon Johnson, I believe, was like 42 percent in our poll. I think that bodes well for the city going forward because, you know, uh, historically race has always been a, a, a main driver in um voter preferences in Chicago, but I think that it's becoming just one of many variables now. And it just demonstrates that, um, you know, voters are becoming more savvy. There's a lot more uh, uh, an intersection, a cross-section of of folks, no matter what race you are, no matter what uh, nationality you are, no matter how much money you make, that folks are now 
hopefully realizing that this we're in this together. And lastly, I would just say that it also provides, I think, an opportunity for Brandon Johnson to redefine what progressivism looks like in terms of moving it from an electoral coalition, which he was successful in, in building a, a racial, uh, multicultural coalition, to now a governing coalition. So I, I, I see that as, as a, 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 a important direction, a new direction that the city can take. So I'm kind of excited. Well, I mean, there's also small P versus capital P, because progressive is a term that everybody uses in, in this city. But it's what is it just kind of like Democrat, like we're so Democrat that we're post-Democrat no. because everyone is is saying it. So I, I would say Johnson represents more of that capital P. And how do you move from that activism to to gov- to governing? Well, as an old progressive with a capital P and very proud of it, um, I thought that, first of all, Brandon is the only progressive mayor we've had since Harold Washington. And I know people have bastardized the term and tried to make it what they want it to be. But everybody we've had since Harold Washington uh, has been so connected to either Daley or Rahm Emanuel, and they've tried to remake themselves. But progressive has one meaning. It's about your values. It's about making sure that every, you lift everyone up and, and supporting public policies that lift up everyone. Not, pu- pu- you know, video gaming, as Valis was talking about, that is not going to lift you up. That is not going to lift up anyone. And so when you talk about progressive, it is very clear that you understand what it means. is public policies that lift up everyone and make sure that everyone has progress. Connie, in his victory speech, Johnson said it's time for a new Chicago that invests, quote, in what actually works to prevent crime, end quote. Chicago that, quote, respects the workers who keep it running and support entrepreneurs that keep it growing, end quote. What do you think this says about his priorities in the first few weeks of office? Right. And I think he recognizes that Johnson recognizes that although he won, he doesn't necessarily have a mandate, that it was that close. And there are always the politics of governing, which are very, very challenging. And mayors have to figure out how to balance competing and sometimes conflicting constituencies and values. And he's going to have to figure out these challenges of promoting, as you talked about, downtown businesses, economic growth, But then also when thinking about how we look at criminal justice, which is much more than just putting more cops out on the street, which is what Vallis bluntly said, is just more cops on the street. Johnson was much more nuanced and looking at the economic, social conditions that cause crime. And it's going to take time. It's absolutely going to take time. And hopefully the citizens of Chicago will have the patience and understand the nuance of that, that it will take time, that this isn't an automatic solution. This is Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons. We're talking about the latest on this runoff election day with our wonderful panel of guests, including Jaime Dominguez, professor at Northwestern University, Connie Mixon, professor, political scientist at Elmhurst University, and Delmarie Cobb, political strategist. Jaime, Paul Vallis tweeted out just after 10 p.m. that he called his his opponent to concede the race. Let's hear a little bit of that concession speech. It's time for all Chicagoans to put aside their differences and to walk and to work together supporting the daunting work ahead for our next mayor. 
I am optimistic that better, brighter days are on the horizon. How have his supporters reacted to that message? Well, I think there was a lot of uh, moaning, I think, in the audience when he said that. And I get it. It's just kind of, it, it's immediate. It's just immediate response. But I think what he what he was trying to do um, is that he wanted to send a message that this was a competitive election. We differed uh, in terms of policies, in terms of our vision of the city. But at the end of the day, right, uh, we're all Chicagoans and we all have to live here. We have to go to school here. We have to go to work here. We pay our taxes, et cetera. So uh, I think he wanted to just make sure that perhaps those supporters who perhaps are thinking, well, you know what, I'm going to you know, make sure that uh, Brandon Johnson is only a one-term kind of mayor. Uh, that shouldn't be kind of the the way to go about it, but more about just we want a kind of um, a city that works, a city that uh, is able to provide the necessary services so that uh, we can be, uh, so our citizens can thrive, and more importantly, to be able to provide, I think, a, a competitive um, uh, business, I think, um, um, environment so that the city can remain competitive. So we want to still, as a city, right, be able to attract uh, corporations. We want to be able to um, uh, create capital improvement projects. We want to be able to build infrastructure. That's all important. Uh, and that's going to require the uh, participation of not just Brandon Johnson's voters, but also uh, Paul Vallis's voters. So I think I was glad to see him uh, give this conciliatory uh, met, uh, speech yesterday. Paul Vallis has run many times. Governor, mayor had never gotten this far. Connie, what do you attribute him making it to the runoff? And then why did he lose? Well, in this election, it, he stuck to a message. And that message was crime, 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 tough on crime, law and order candidate. In previous elections, he seemed to have a white paper for almost every single issue um, in the last mayoral race, he had the broom that he was going to sweep out City Hall. These kind of things didn't really catch on. And I think he followed the model. And I think it's interesting to look, for example, in New York City, where Eric Adams won with this very tough on crime, crackdown on crime message. But then in Los Angeles, you have Karen Bass, who won on a more progressive platform. Um, in fact, she beat a millionaire who also had a law and order message. So I think what we're seeing in cities all across the United States is we're seeing these maybe two extremes on the ideological spectrum within the Democratic Party, um, where you have a more conservative candidate, you have a more progressive candidate, and maybe the middle is being lost, and those are becoming the two choices that we're seeing shake out in cities. Why did Vallis lose? He wasn't able to expand his base, um, as Delmarie pointed out earlier. Johnson greatly expanded his base. I think that Vallis was capped out. I also think Johnson had the foot soldiers of the CTU and other unions to get out the vote, and Vallis didn't have that infrastructure. We're back with more Reset. Delmarie, I want to go back to you quickly because you had some thoughts on how Vallis made it this far, but still came up short in the runoff. Well, you know, the the, the uh, voters have rejected Paul Vallis, as you said, since uh, 2002. Um, so he was rejected in 2002. He was rejected in 2014. He was rejected in 2019. And uh, again, he was rejected in 2023. But the fact that he made it this far 
was because he was the only white candidate in the race. And and we can't dismiss that. Uh, even when you look at the coverage, um, he was not considered a political hack. Uh, when black people run three or four times and lose, all of a sudden they become political hacks, no matter what they were before that. Um, and, and also he kept being referred to as a Democratic moderate. He was not moderate. He was conservative. And so a lot was done, uh, and he was, consi- he was referred to as a technocrat. All these things to prop him up to make him a, a, vi- a viable candidate when he really was never a viable candidate until people started throwing money at him right and left. Well, and he raised double what Brandon Johnson brought in. Um, and so Johnson's going to be joined by several progressive alders and the fewest number of white alders since 1923. I'm excited to be working with a new city council, a new mayor. I think we're coming in very eyes wide open, very committed to our neighbors. And I think it's going to be talking to as many neighbors as we did on this campaign trail, letting them know that we are here to work with them and for them. That's Alder-elect Angela Clay in the 46th Ward on the north side. So what does this mean for what issues the city council will take on and how the new members will work with Mayor-elect Johnson? So we've heard from Delmarie Cobb, political strategist. We've also got Jaime Dominguez, who is at Northwestern, and Connie Mixon at Elmhurst University. Connie, did any of the automatic races surprise you? No, I don't think so. Um I think that what we saw in a lot of the aldermanic races was what we were seeing on a larger stage between Vallis and Johnson. And what I think we're going into is a city council that is perhaps more polarized. Um, it looks like progressives picked up seats, Democratic Socialists pick up, picked up seats, women picked up seats, importantly, Latinas picked up seats. So it's certainly a more diverse city council, but we can't ignore the fact that conservatives did well in February. And I was particularly interested in the 45th Ward, for example, Jim Gardner. I'm not quite sure how he keeps getting reelected. He has ethics violations. He's being investigated by the FBI. He has all kinds of challenges facing him. And he had a challenger in Megan Mathias that looked to be a strong challenger in the runoff. But that goes to show how polarized some of these north and northwest side wards, um, north, northwest side wards and also southwest side wards are, particularly with candidates that were endorsed by the FOP that we saw particularly on the northwest side. So I think city council grows more polarized, but they've also you know, managed a power grab last week on Thursday when they gave themselves more power, claim, you know, claiming for more independence as well. We've all wanted a more independent functioning legislative branch in the city of Chicago. But what happened in this case was a lot of the existing committee persons maintained their power and named themselves committee persons going forward. But I do wonder how exactly polarizing it will be. So Gartner wins. Maybe he will feel emboldened, but he also might be a little low key because he has these investigations around him. But the city council doesn't have the Burks, the Verdoliaks, um, you know, the same kind of Madigan bat candidate. So what are we seeing on the northwest and southwest sides that could lead to polarization, Jaime? Well, I think it's just what I said earlier. Again, demography, demography, demography. So you're seeing this this new uh, age, this new era of, again, uh, young uh, 
elected officials who perhaps, you know, uh, perhaps a little bit more left of center when it comes to politics and redefining uh, progressivism. But at the same time, I think for Brandon Johnson, in terms of, again, being able to move from a successful electoral coalition to a governing coalition, these new elected officials uh, in the city council, I think, are going to feel, particularly those that are, I would consider kind of ultra-progressives, uh, and perhaps those that are aligned in such with the Democratic Socialists of America, such as Byron Cicho Lopez, perhaps, or Carla Ramiro Rosa. So they may feel more emboldened, more empowered to push things through. Uh, so I think that's going to be uh, Brandon's challenge also, that perhaps there's, the space has perhaps widened. But again, he has given that his message is that he's going to be a mayor for everybody. That means that you're not always going to get what you want when you want. And so... You know, it's going to be important for Brandon Johnson, and he's a smart uh, man. He knows this. He's also going to have to really engage in uh, kind of coalition building, right? Uh, and at times, you know, it may not, you may uh, um, upset perhaps some members of, of your base, but if that means at the end of the day you're going to be able to gain more support from the city on particular issues, then that's just, a, you know, t- tough decisions that he's going to have to make. So, um, for example, he's going uh, to, to my colleague Connie's point, um, you know, the, the, the more conservative Northwest side who perhaps, you know, they feel uh, um, are more police friendly. You know, he's going to have to also, I think, at, at some point kind of work with them. That's not to say, though, that he uh, does. Uh, he doesn't have to necessarily capitulate. Right. I mean, he's the winner. He gets the right to determine what to uh, set the policy agenda, prioritize the policy agenda prioritize budget decisions, but at the same time, work with other partners who uh, also have a stake in those decisions. We've seen city council do some morphing over several years with more Democrat socialists Mm -hmm. coming in and harnessing their power. But we've also seen our share of rubber stamp city council for years. Um, Delmarie, how do you think that will play out? I mean, we've already seen this power grab in the 11th hour. Well, you know, it's been a numbers game and it's been a lot, a lot. You got to be in it for the long haul. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. And so we've been adding the, the magic number is 26. And so we've been adding and you keep adding until you get a majority. And that's what I take heart in is that all these elections in the last two or three elections, we have added to our numbers as progressives. And so that is uh, heartening. The other part is I, I think we've got to watch people like uh, uh, Brendan Riley. We've got to watch uh, Brian Hopkins. Um, uh, and those are downtown mm-hmm. alders. Are d- who... Downtown. Uh, Brian Hopkins represents the second war. Uh, Brendan, the 42nd. Uh, Anthony Beal, who uh, suddenly grew a backbone when Lori Lightfoot became the mayor, uh, who's the ninth ward. Uh, Ray Lopez, uh, so who's the 16th ward. So those are the people you're going to have to, I mean, 15th ward. Those are the people you're going to have to start watching to see what they really do, because uh, Anthony didn't get one of the uh, committee uh, seats uh, during this takeover uh, because of, and I mean, for legitimate reasons, because uh, when you talk about 28 committee chairs, uh, you got to pay for 28 committee chairs. And part of that was we're going to offer 28 committee chairs to get the votes to pass this, because if we offer 28, then we know we got the 26 that we need to pass something. So it's going to be interesting to see how the dynamics of this new city council plays out. Uh, the good thing is that you do have progressives who are who were reelected. So they've been there. So they're not all new. 
And that's so it's going to be a very interesting, uh, I think, city council. Can I just add to that real quickly? Sure. So it's uh, an excellent point. I think for Brandon Johnson to be successful, uh, unlike our uh, unlike the previous uh, mayor, who I think really governed through subtraction, meaning uh, reducing her circle of advisors so that she can get what she wants whenever she wanted. Um, and if you didn't like it, then you're out. But Brandon Johnson, he's a community organizer. He has uh, he has a history of working with a wide swath of folks, uh, working with a myriad of interests. And so for him, I think, again, to be successful, he's going to have to bring more people on board so that he can get, build a larger consensus. And that's something that he can pitch right to voters that, listen, I have not necessarily a mandate, but I have enough support across the aisle that then people might be able to get around. So, and I think that's gonna that's not gonna be a challenge for him just because of his history as being a community organizer. He he has dealt with, I'm sure, uh, folks who are on the opposite end of the aisle. But again, and if it if it means being able to push through your um, your your policies and your agenda, then that's the way it's gonna be. And I think it, it reaffirms his message in this campaign is that he's. Uh, a, a mayor for everybody, and he's going to right uh, go into all pockets of the city of Chicago uh, to hear and to listen and to as best as possible, right, incorporate those voices in his decision making. And so I, I, would, I, I would just say that he's superb at retail politics, and that will translate well into working. What, what with do you city mean council. by retail politics? The ability to make personal connections, to talk to people different than himself. I mean, retail politics is getting out the vote, making people feel, you know, that they've been heard and providing some authenticity behind that. And he's really good at it. We saw it in that speech last night, and that will serve him well in what may be a somewhat divided city council. The magic number is 26. He's got to get to 26. So he's got to figure out how to do that. So has anyone done any of the back of the envelope adding what number is he at <laughs> now? I, I'm thinking he's probably at like 19-ish. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're we're close. Yeah. And so all you have to do is convince a few more other people to come over to, uh, to your side when you're uh, taking votes. I mean, we're the closest we've ever been. So I live in the ninth ward, Anthony Beals ward, and he did not go for Johnson, as did a number of black alders on the south side as well. You know, uh, Jaime, you started talking about the black um, political establishment. Mm-hmm. So the Emil Jones, the That's Bobby right. Rush, right. Um, so- Sophia King, Young. Walter ups- Burnett. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Delmarie, what does this mean? Because we've seen the numbers now. The South and West Side Black wards went for Johnson, but their alders did did not. So, one, how will that play for those alders in city council? And two, does that mean that their seats are vulnerable? Well, I don't know that their seats are vulnerable because it's four years have you know they're there for the next four years, and people have short memories. I mean, these people keep getting reelected, whether they do a good job or not. Uh, and unfortunately, all you have to do is look at the turnout at the ward level; it's so pitiful. Uh, I mean, six thousand people for an alderman uh, to get elected—that's absolutely ridiculous. Out of out of fifty thousand. So anyway, uh, so but the thing is that uh, when you talk about uh, the divide. That's the same divide we had when Harold Washington ran. When Harold Washington ran, you had the establishment black people who supported Byrne and supported Daly. And so that's always going to be. People do it for different reasons. Some people do it because they're always going to go with who they think is going to win. 
uh, not necessarily who they want, but if they they want to be on the winning side, they want to be in the room. And so they figured they don't want to support anybody who might shut them out. The Then you have those people who are trying to figure out, well, if I if I support this person and they do win, I can bring back resources for my community. How can I bring resources for my community? So they're taking a gamble. And you might, you know, you might lose when you take that gamble. Uh, and then you've got people who... Um, they're just going to go along to get along no matter what. And, uh, I mean, I (laughs) sat on a panel once with a uh, prominent African-American alderman uh, who keeps getting reelected. Who was it, Delmarie? We want names. Who said said to me in this panel full of people, uh, you know, sometimes it's better if we have a white alderman. I mean, a white mayor. And, uh, And, of course, I almost fell out. Uh, when he said it. So, you know, those are the, those are, that's the thinking behind some of this. Connie, any thoughts? Boy, um, <laughs> I think that the establishment, you know, of the machine, there's still some remnants of the machine that still exists. There's, and the machine was very good at co-opting a lot of black leaders in Chicago and giving them crumbs. Um, to go along, to get along. And I think there's a little bit of that 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 still exists. And the power of incumbency is is real. And you vote for the name you know, the name that you've you know been voting for for decades. And I think that holds in a lot of the wards. And unfortunately, voter turnout is so low in these wards that it just, we're not getting much change. Yeah, we saw the same thing, you know, uh, uh, but with Latinos as well. In terms of again, this those associated with the old kind of political guard uh, and how they came out right away to 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 um, support uh, Paul Vallis. But I think the community also going forward is going to have to decide whether or not how or how much that message really uh, does. To uh, Del Marie's point, uh, kind of create a um, a rising tide to lift all boats because. As we saw with Latinos, particularly under the Richard M. Daley administration, right, we saw for the first time from a representation standpoint, yes, a, a lot more Latinos being elected to positions of power and uh, nonprofits and certain organizations getting resources due to the great things that they do in, in, in the neighborhood. But at the same time, what that really did, it only elevated just a subset of the Latino uh, population. And so uh, we and we saw what happened at the end of the day, right? That house was built and then it collapsed, right? I'm referring specifically to like the Hispanic Democratic Organization. So you have kind of a phenomenon with that uh, uh, one that's kind of uh, built from the top down. Uh, it's very easy to collapse as opposed to one that's built from the ground up. So I see this election as an opportunity, not just for the city, but uh, for the respect to Latinos to really kind of uh, uh, create the found, a strong foundation and begin to uh, create uh, those pillars, for example, that are going to, uh, regardless of who you vote for, but create higher levels of civic engagement, higher levels of participation. The more they participate, the more the establishment is going to pay attention. And it's been clear uh, from last night that there is no one Latino vote. Right. I mean, as you said, there's the Hispanic Democratic Organization, yes. that old guard, and then the progressive. I mean, I think one of the things here that, you know, we talk about racial politics, but within all these communities, there's no monolithic, even even white. You know, there's the bungalow belt on the northwest and southwest sides, but then you have Johnson's base 
being, you know, the so-called lakefront liberals. Um, so let's with city council, what issues do you think they are going to tackle first, Delmarie? Well, they have to tackle uh, two issues. I mean, that were actually prominent in the campaign, and that is uh, police reform and um I mean, in terms of public safety and, and education. I mean, because we just voted for a commission of civilian oversight over the police. And so that's going to take shape. Uh, the first thing you've got to do is uh, find a police superintendent. And so all of that becomes front and center. Uh, the other part is uh, pub, uh, uh, education. Uh, we also voted for, for the first time, an elected school board, which is going to take shape next year. So those are really two of the first uh, issues that uh, Brandon is going to have to navigate and shape them into his vision. Uh, What is your real vision as a progressive for these moving forward? And, of course, we've got the budget. And then and how do you pay for all of these programs? So those are some of the the first three things that they're going to have to really tackle. Chicago has always been a tale of two cities. What were you expecting, and was anyone surprised by this voter turnout? No, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, I mean, as I said earlier, African Americans in the city have 35 years of evidence of the city that works hasn't been working for them. And uh, Paul Vallis was an extension of that. Um, When you talk about—and Rahm Emanuel— is responsible for making CTU into the monster that they think it is now. Uh, Because when he came in, one of the first things he said to uh, Karen Lewis is, face it, Karen, 25% of the students aren't going to make it anyway. And what he was talking about is 25% private school, 25% charter school, 25% elective enrollment school, and 25% neighborhood school. And those are the people who aren't going to make it anyway because we're going to see to it because we're going to starve the schools to death. And so that was the the beginning of creating this monster that everybody wants to fear because, heaven forbid, teachers want to have political power when they represent working families. Jaime, anything for you? Not necessarily surprising, but one thing we haven't discussed that I think this election also speaks to is um, it speaks to just what's happening nationally nationally within the Democratic Party also, right? We see... Also, this uh, competition to expand uh, the tent. And you're seeing uh, basically uh, more moderate, conservative uh, candidates being uh, challenged by younger, more diverse, more progressive, and even ultra-progressive candidates who want to see the party, you know, kind of uh, not move further, I guess, from the right. So um, I think to, for me as a political scientist, I find that very interesting because, again, Chicago is, is the third largest city. It can be a bellwether for what happens uh, nationally. So I think that the Democratic Party also can, can take a page, I think, from what has happened um, to, last night and that um, there's room for everybody. Uh, but at the same time, um, I think it, 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 pro- it provides an opportunity for a competition of ideas about how government should run, how budgets should be spent, and the extent to which, uh, to Don Marie's point, um, we support right, important institutions like, you know, perhaps uh, uh, in, in education, right, that make sure that resources 
are provided to that. Um, but one thing also I want to say about, about education and, and, and Chicago public schools is also, there's also, you know, I talked about demography, but that's also uh, it, going forward, it's going to play a huge role because now we also see the extent to which Latinos are becoming a larger uh, um, collective, right, w- within within uh, the educational system here in Chicago. So it's important, given that Latinos are the majority of the students now in CTU, right, that um, the services, the resources that they need, whether it's personnel, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's capital improvement projects, the creation of more schools because of the growth in the population. It's important um, that leaders are, are cognizant of that and, and respond to that. And again, that's what elections are for. If they don't like it, then in four years or eight years, whatever it is, right, they can go to the polls and, and uh, elect perhaps those leaders that will advocate more strongly for them. Connie, something Johnson brought up in his acceptance speech um, is this merging of two progressive movements. Let's take a listen. It was right here in the city of Chicago that Martin Luther King Jr. organized for justice, dreaming that one day that the civil rights movement and the labor rights movement will come together. Well, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the civil rights movement and the labor rights movement has finally collided. We are experiencing the very dream of the greatest man who ever walked the earth. What are your thoughts on that statement? I think that a lot of our previous mayors, particularly Rahm Emanuel and his struggles with the CTU, did not recognize what a strong union city Chicago is. I mean, we are the birthplace of unions in the United States. There were some before in Europe, but Chicago is the birthplace of unions in the United States. The whole Haymarket tragedy happened right here in Chicago. And to his detriment, Rahm Emanuel did not recognize the strength of unions in Chicago. He didn't recognize that teachers were married to cops, who were married to firefighters when the strike happened, who were married to sanitation workers or who had other members of their families who were out walking the picket lines with them. And as Delmarie said earlier, that created the power that the CTU has today. And so it is a merging of civil rights, of the union movement that are coming together full force in Chicago. We touched a little bit earlier about the black establishment and their support for Vallis. But I'm really curious, Delmarie, about Bobby Rush, who's no longer a congressman. Um, and there's, you know, something a little, I guess, ironic about a former Black Panther standing next to the Fraternal Order of Police-backed mm-hmm. Vallis. What do you think this says for his legacy? Well, I don't know that it harms his legacy any. Um, his legacy is what it is. Uh, there are people who support him and people who don't support him. Um, but if you look at where he's been over the years, in, in recent years. I mean, he supported Rahm. Um, he ran against Daly. And then after he lost, he started coming over closer and closer to the the center and more in touch with them. Some of his major supporters in terms of funding are Rahm's people. Uh, he he became friends with them. Uh, the, the mayor whisperer um, is one of his... Uh, Bobby's supporters as well. So, I mean, we've se- we've seen it. If you watch it closely, you've seen it. Uh, the only thing that I say uh, when I saw him come out for Paul Vallis is that Bobby Rush has no coattails. 
Um, you know, he his 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 uh, family members have run for office and never won. Uh, Karen Norrington Reeves, who he anointed to replace him, she didn't win. Um, Tony Prettwinkle, when he uh, uh, supported her, she didn't win. And so last night, Vallis didn't win, and he supported him. So that's the only good thing that came out of this. The other person who um, I think a lot of people were head-scratching about was Jamal Green, who arguably was one of the most progressive candidates on his ideas. He rolled so hard for Vallis. What do you make of this shift, and particularly given his his youth, Jaime? Yeah, I was a little uh, stupefied by that as well. Uh, I couldn't quite figure it out. The only thing I was thinking, perhaps, I don't know if there was some kind of backdoor kind of conversation, perhaps, in terms of if he won, this is what perhaps uh, the type of support that uh, Bellis's, uh administration could do. But outside of that, I, I just I couldn't figure it out. I see you shaking your head, too, Connie. <laughs> I have, I can't explain that, other than maybe there was a backroom maybe. deal or maybe Jamal promised to loan him his bus. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think that Vallis probably thought, you know, uh, Jamal would bring some younger, younger people, people yeah, to, to, his, to his campaign and uh, voters to him. And, and that didn't happen. And young black voters, right? Right, exactly. Right, yeah. A dichotomy in this election on crime with Johnson be, you know, having to defend previous statements around defunding the police. And then here's Vallis, tough on crime. Uh, what happens next here, considering the head of the police union has said there will be blood on the streets and that 100 to, 800 to 1,000 officers would quit if Johnson won? Well, I think, uh, you know, that. That whole law enforcement uh, phenomenon during this campaign, I think really, again, as I said earlier, was kind of people were trying to pitch it as a us versus them. I think Brandon Johnson, um, I think one thing that he can uh, do when he uh, is ushered into offices, and he's talked about this uh, in terms of just, you know, uh, caring for the for the welfare of the Chicago Police Department, providing mental health services. I mean, he's talked about that in terms of his larger kind of comprehensive plan in terms of public safety, but how that also can be an important part of police reform and accountability, because that was something also that was on on the minds of voters, particularly minority voters, right? This idea that you could walk and chew them at the same time, uh, uh, provide support for the Chicago Police Department, provide the budgetary uh, uh, priorities, do that, but at the same time also um, be cognizant of, of their well-being. This episode of Reset was produced by everyone on the wonderful Reset team. It was edited by Andrew Merriweather and Meha Ahmad. Want more election analysis? Well, be sure to check out our second podcast where we talk to Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson. That's all for this episode. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.